All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. I got news for you, pal. You ain't leading but two things right now. Jack and shit. Jack left town. Well, hello, Mr. Fancy Pants. in my office and I heard a rocket. Describe the rocket, sir. Does this mean we're not friends anymore? Not me. I'm in my prime. Your mind. Ain't it cool? First you want to kill me, now you want to kiss me. Blow. Good. Bad. I'm the guy with the gun. Is it Rye? It's Rye. Congrats to us. Yes! MTR P. I always forget the P. MTRP, because we're now a P. Yeah, we're now a P. But we hit a thousand downloads! Woo! That's pretty exciting for us over just a year of doing this podcast. I mean, I, I know probably everybody's like, wow. Yeah, whoopee. I get a thousand. We get 10,000 hits a day. I'm like, we're okay, like, well, you know what? Blow me. <laughs> we're trying real hard okay yeah we are and i think we do a great show we put out some good music we have some interesting topics whether you agree or disagree with us doesn't matter uh it's all food to thought speaking of which um i stole a little tagline from mr joe bob briggs from the last driving because we are big fans oh God, of that's that a, show that's a cute show it's like he's funny and then he's got this hot like co-host darcy mm. uh yeah so basically it's like uh almost a viral missiles of the night he does a lot of horror movie uh commentary while the movie's on you can find it on shutter i think he did it way back in the day and then recently within the last couple of years came back and started doing we it love our shutter i mean that's for a uh, five dollars a month it has some great yeah but uh so before he gets started in his shows and movies uh he goes through like with stats and like how many deaths how many <laughs> yeah. what kind of stars are in it. and he has this like series of things he talks about like you know stabbing foo beat up foo whatever it just varies but we had what we called a drunken bicycle foo happen just the other night. So, see, you you gave it away. We <laughs> did I? Yeah, because yesterday I wake up and I go out and I leave quite early for work. So I'm outside and I'm running late as I always am. And I look at my car and someone had hit my car 
and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, my mirror's on the ground, and I'm like, oh, I'm not sticking out that far, and there's trucks that are by me. You could have hit them because they stick out more, and so I just, I kind of threw the mirror in the car, locked up, and I took DJ Anubis's car to work, and I'm like, all right, I'll deal with this. I, you know, called State Farm and stuff, and I texted Anubis, I'm like, hey, I'm sorry I took your car, uh, somebody hit my car last night, and he was like, what the fuck? So he goes out there, looks at the car. A couple hours later, I guess our neighbor across the street where I had parked had seen us out there, like, dealing with it. We have a ring camera on our front door, and he apparently had a ring camera as well, and he brought it over to show DJ Anubis what had happened. So... It wasn't a car, it was a drunk dude on a bike, hit the car so hard you could hear the crash in the video, like, BAM! Falls off the bike, gets up, and just keeps riding. Yeah, he doesn't just get up, he staggers, gets, <laughs> he gets back on the bike. And, and, so even if he was drunk already, apparently the, the, the blast radius, like... <laughs> knocked him pretty much like like he was seeing stars more than he normally would i'm like how drunk do you have to be and dj anubis told me he's like he was across the street and ran into the like straight for the car and i'm like oh my god so i mean i was a little pissed but then i'm like you know what it's actually kind of funny we got the mirror replaced it was no big deal yeah i mean you know despite the fact there was a little bit of damage uh, obviously they replaced the mirror but like and you're gonna it could have been a lot worse i mean obviously but uh you're gonna clean up the car and see if you can buff out the, the yeah scratches. So I, you know, I try to put my little tricks of the trade at use and see if i can clean it up a little bit but really I'm not. I'm really not worried about the body work because it's not a big dent. It's just like a little circular scratch, which looks like a bicycle handle if you think about it. Right. So it was. I, you know, I can't get over. I mean, you know, at least he wasn't driving a car right. drunk, yeah. but he was so drunk that he barreled into my car at such a speed. And you have to understand, like she's parked between some other cars on the side of the street, so literally. The odds of him hitting her car is almost like 1 in 20. What's funny though, like, this car, I've had it for 10 years. I love it. It's a it's a nice, reliable little car. And I don't drive that much because I travel so much that we're not really concerned about it. I mean, we're not going to clearly sink if something breaks on it. We're not going to sink thousands and thousands of dollars in it because it's so old. However, it's it's been a good car to me, but it's... We have been hit five times. Uh, I kind of like it without the car moving. Like we we've been at parking, stop yeah, stoplights. Three, two or three times, hit. We're at a stoplight. We're not going anywhere. We get hit. We get hit by a bicycle. Um, he was driving. Beltway traffic in Baltimore is a little bit mm, shitty. Yeah, I don't. It's it's hard to describe if you don't live in a city with really bad traffic. He's at a complete stop. Someone hits him. Like, all of... And I'm like, it's like a big... My car's the blue bomber. I'm like, it's like a big blue target. Please hit me. So, I, I'm like, I guess next color... But the car is sort of like Miss Kitty. She just won't die. Yeah, just won't die. Just, just, just won't stays. give up. So, I guess 
maybe next time I get a car, I'm not going to get blue. I so think. friends should not let friends drive bicycles while drunk. Oh, my God. But our, we have a couple of Dutch friends, and they're like, don't don't tell that to the Dutch, because they, they ride they their bikes the everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but see, that'd be kind of comical. I'd have to film someone that with a bunch of drunk people driving bikes. Well, bike. funny, funny fact, though, when I was in Taiwan, we did the same thing. Like, the ship had a ton of bikes that we would use just to kind of pedal around. Um, there's a law now in Taiwan where you could be fined for drunk driving a bike. That we act, they're actually in... The, like our little meeting room there's a sign like please do not be drunk and riding your bike you will get fined <laughs> so but well, we got a lot to get to yes today. we do got like two or three docs uh reviews that we're doing to we'll talk about a little bit uh a couple passings as well as a best of list and so we are going to get started though we got some new stuff by sinister sinister vitoid yeah, that's new. Cattle decapitation is not new, but I was listening to it the other day. While and you're I was like, oh, around, I feel like we need some cattle decapitation. Yeah, in we need our to life. play some of this shit on the next podcast. So, kicking it off with this block here's Sinister, Scourged by Demons.
This is Sky Nielsen Promotions. I offer the most affordable, effective, independent metal promotions one can find. If you've got a metal band, project, or art that you want promoted, simply search for Sky Nielsen Promotions. And you're listening to Hordes of Chaos on Metal Tavern Radio. She's in love with herself. One day closer to the end of the world. Cattle decapitation. Oh, I thought you were just making a, a statement one day close, because that's what it feels like sometimes. Well, that's sort of why I played it. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the world is crazy right now, man, between COVID and... And all the uh, protesting. The, right, the riots and everything else going on, but I don't want to get any more in it. I think watching Middle of Mania, I'm kind of along with uh, Crypt and Scully. It's kind of like it gets exhausting after a while trying to rehash the same stuff over and over. And it's the set, the thing is, all of this, the the virus, the um, the protesting, that all, it affects everybody's daily lives. Even if it's something as minor as, oh, it's in the news, and I see it all the time. But it really, it's it's this is a different time right now so as we move forward in in life it's going to start reflecting itself in our our movies in our music well it's already started doing that really um i mean obviously when it comes to rock and metal music uh social political religious themes have always been prevalent in Mm -hmm. those uh movies it's been in there as well occasionally but now like within the last 10 years it started to really shape a certain way um just how things are now but uh in fact the movie we're gonna this doc we're gonna discuss actually has something to do i have a lot to say on this actually i rewatched it last night while you what, were the out. scream queen yeah because i need to refresh myself on it but um there's a lot that from my own perspective i have to say on this just from how i viewed it what i thought of it and even though the doc was very enlightening to things I didn't know, um, it, it was really interesting. I know you and I both enjoyed it a lot. Uh, basically, it's called Screen Queen, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, uh, or is My Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, basically, it's all about Mark Patton, the star of uh, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, if you ever seen that, Freddy's Revenge. Uh, before I get into my own uh, views on everything, how I saw when I first saw it and everything, basically the film is about how Patton was a gay man, who I did not know at the time, uh, trying to play a straight guy in a movie which had, by the admission of the scriptwriter and the director, uh, some very gay uh, undertones. Uh, unknowns to me because I was like about 16 when I saw this and I didn't see it in a theater so I didn't really pay attention to any of the media or the papers or the reviews because apparently uh, when it came to Mark some of the feedback from that like at a certain point like the movie was doing really well and then at a certain point something got said about how this is the gayest horror movie ever and shit just started to go crazy at and he point. basically said that that movie ended his career and what's interesting um is at that time the aids crisis really was hitting home like you're seeing so many people dying of aids getting you know contracting aids and um everybody was scared 
So it was literally like a gay witch hunt, especially in Hollywood. They were coming out with, if you're gay, you can't uh, be in Hollywood. Like, they were putting in contracts crazy things. Like, if you're gay, you can't act in Hollywood. You can't kiss, you know, another woman. Because everybody just assumed every gay person had AIDS. And there were a lot of deaths and um, that kind of really brought uh, the AIDS culture home. Like, a lot of people are sitting there thinking, you know, it has nothing to do with me. I'm not gay. I'm not a, a drug user. So around this time when they're starting to see big celebrities who um, are getting AIDS and dying, now this young guy, he en ended up getting AIDS too. And he literally said, like, because they outed him. He, he wasn't out, but this movie outed him, and he actually moved to Mexico. Like, yeah. he was, he's... Basically, <laughs> what happened was, when it became problematic for the movie because people were labeling it gay and they were gaining undertones, I can't remember the script writer's, writer's name, but this, there's a bit of tension between Mark and his script writer because... At the time of the movie's release, the scriptwriter was actually getting hammered on the gay undertones. Like apparently that became a thing. And at the time, the gay uh, the scriptwriter said, "Well, it's not me making it gay; it was Mark." Mm -hmm. making it gay. And that's really what set things into a chain of emotion or a chain reaction. And for Mark, he's been dealing with this. You have to think this is back in 1986, so he's been or 85 and 86. So he's been dealing with this for years while he's in hiding uh learning to cope with it learning to do this and that you know having one of his best friends slash boyfriend die fr from aids right so um he said they were like on again off again but they were still very but close. he took a lot of like even when he'd go online when it became a thing like there was just so much anger and resentment towards him because he was gay and all this other stuff so at some point, like, when they did a doc called Never Sleep Again, which covered all the movies, and this is what sort of started the chain of uh, trying to find Mark. Like, no one knew where the fuck he was. Because he was in Mexico. He, he, he just wanted to lay right. low. He so, didn't want to deal with... But they wanted to do this whole doc on the movie series for Nightmare on Elm Street, and so they went searching for him. They found him. And at that point, Mark started to realize that there were, like, legions of fans that were actually behind him and behind the movie... So he started to come out more and started doing, like, appearances, but he hadn't yet met with the rest of the cast. Um, so this was a, a Comic-Con yeah. that they did the whole reunion, and everybody was very much, like, hugging and open arms, and, you know, it's good to hear, like, he's very healthy. They've they One of the scary things, though, about, just not to cut you off, but... Uh, one of the things about the HIV thing was that Mark brought up was at the time it was a very critical time for Hollywood because if he said that they were actually blood testing you mm -hmm. and check like, for there's, HIV and, and there's nothing he could hide like right. when you get a blood test right but what he's now because he's he's been pretty much in remission they they said you know 
the with the advancement in medicine and the regimen that he was on because he said for like a year he was so sick and he basically had pneumonia and cancer and like his body was just shutting down the regimen of medicine they they got him on it's pretty much undetectable they said in his the the doctors said in his his blood so he's actually very healthy and doing very well and yeah, he's still taking i saw even in like some, they had some shots of him in the hotel room he's still taking pills and stuff but he's better mm-hmm. than he was well that's because with again with the advancement of, of right. research he's and he knew that he had uh, more advantage than his his luck partner did back in the day so from that aspect, he was kind of like at the advantage and not having it. He said he came close to death, though. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he, in the hospital for a year. He said sick constantly, pneumonia. He had cancer. Like, it was crazy. But for me, like, you and I were discussing this because we both are fans of Nightmare on Elm Street and lots of horror movies. Me, Freddy Krueger, for me, was life growing up. I, I've always been kind of a strange child and... My girlfriend and I used to worship Freddy Krueger. We used to play a game where we would turn off all the lights and run around the basement screaming that Freddy was going to get us. Like, I, it might be because I saw it for the first time as a child. Like, I don't know. My my mother let me watch whatever I wanted. So a, a seven-year-old child watching Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is probably not the best choice, but I did I think, it anyway. I think for a lot of people, Freddy was like... Because, like, in a way for me, uh, and it actually kind of started at the tail end of uh, Freddy's Revenge, how Freddy really went from, like, this horror guy to me to more of an action hero almost. Because once the humor kicked in, some people love and hate it. I mean, the thing is, like, Nightmare on Elm Street is still the scariest of all of them for me because it's just so brutal. Like, you don't have much commentary from Freddy. He's just there to, like, really fuck shit up. Um... As the series went on, obviously, Dream Warriors is one of those things where... I think that was my favorite. Next to the original, yeah. But the thing what I noticed about was when I went into Dream Warriors and watched it, I was kind of like, well, this makes sense. This makes those that are usually victims have actual power to fight back. And so there's kind of like this alleviation of anxiety you would normally feel in a, a circumstance dealing with something like this where a guy can actually kill you in your sleep. So it ended up giving power back to the people that he would torment. So I found that an interesting concept when it happened. But now back to the second one. The second one I saw again, like, when I was a kid. And I, and even now, I I guess I just missed the gay undertones. I, I, I don't see it because they were talking about how he was, like, dancing in his room. And that's, like, really gay. And I'm like, what about, like risky business when Tom Cruise was dancing in his underwear with his sunglasses and is that gay? Like what I just think of it as a kid fucking around in his bedroom. Like I used to do stupid shit like that when I was a teenager. Blast the music, dance around in my room. I mean and I didn't like they were saying the part where like he's becoming Freddy and that's just like he's hiding from his gayness and stuff. Well, they mentioned that I they, I didn't they see directed that. it from a point of a possession film, which I had never really realized until it actually made sense. So from that angle I get it. But when I first saw that film, I like I said, I didn't see it in a the theater. I saw it on HBO when it came on just one day, I said, Oh, I have another one of these movies. So I checked it out. Uh, yeah, I didn't love it as much as the first one, but 
as far as you point out, the gay undertones, like, I didn't even notice, even, even though I knew that the bar scene with the coach was a gay bar, like, I, two, two or three weeks ago before we watched this, I was on one of my horror boards that, you know, groups, whatever, got on Facebook, and someone had said that, oh, that's not a gay bar. I said, dude, you're fucking out of your mind. That's totally a gay bar. Just the whole feel of it, the leather, the, 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 the girls together, the guys together, it's a gay bar. But I didn't go into that scene saying to myself, well, Jesse, who is Mark Patton's character, I didn't say to myself, Jesse is gay. I said, Jesse is possessed by Freddy. His goal is to kill people. So here he is going to a gay bar to hunt down the coach who is gay. Clearly, that was the message I got. I th Yeah, and that's what I mean. I think that's what it was. They were... Cause the coach was the bad guy, you but know. But that was the only time I ever thought of anything gay in a movie, like... Because they made it very blatantly obvious that they're going... The coach is at a gay bar. Right. We're going after the coach. I mean, that. some people talk about the chemistry between him and the girl. I forget her name. Uh, the lead actress who was playing his girlfriend or the girl adventurous. And, you know, of course, the joke is about Jesse and the cabana with, with her and his... Freddie's tongue coming out while he's getting ready to go on her tits or whatever it is, but... The point is, like, even though there might have been some chemistry, it's because he wasn't, he was trying to play a straight guy who was a gay guy, and he was a young actor. He was a very good-looking dude. I'm not afraid to say that. He's one of the reasons why he got hired to begin with. The mm -hmm. guy he didn't have to have a resume. The guy said, you know what, we're going to make you sell in commercials. They could, yeah, he, they said, you'd be perfect for commercials. You got that look. So, But obviously, when they went to go do this movie, like, Mark noticed right away there were some gay undertones. And his agent said, well, we've got to get you to be a straight actor. We can't let this out of the bag or whatever. Because it just it wasn't the right time. And, of course, there was some backlash to it. And when people figured it out, obviously that's what happened. But from my perspective, I never saw that movie as a gay movie at all. I can go back now and say, okay, well, you're pointing out this and that. Okay, maybe. But I'm 16, dude. I'm, I see... A young teenager, as you said, dancing around in his room before a date. I'd be headbanging or some other crazy shit. I don't know if I'd be dancing the kind of way he was, but the point is, like, he was excited. He was going on a date with a girl. And outside that, it's you can call the, the cabana thing is just an inexperience as sexually. If you're yeah. a virgin, you're not going to really know what to do with the girl. So obviously you might freak out a little bit. Not yeah, know it, it's, it's not... I hate that something like this really ruined a guy's career and I mean but he he really persevered like you could see that he w he went got through everything that happened he was sad clearly at first but as time went on he he really he got healthy he met someone new he has a beautiful home in Mexico with his his now um I guess it's his husband right mm -hmm. it so there, he's he's moved on and he's lived and he's he's doing great but then it just shows again because we're talking about how the times are changing and something that sucked so bad for him well it's come out better uh he obviously we said he uh reunited with the cast it wasn't like getting attention with them they were all very happy to see him the director was happy to see him uh the script writer wasn't there now i'm just gonna get to a couple points before we get back to the music but the script writer had initially thrown him out of the bus. Now, the director, there was this point where they were all gathered, the other co-stars co and, you know, the director, and they were just chit-chatting, and 
at that point, Mark was kind of like, you know, I just really felt like uh, such and such, I think his name was David, uh, threw me under the bus by saying that I made the movie more gay. And then the director took it upon himself to talk with Mark later on Solo and was asking Mark, like, you know, I noticed that you were hanging on to this for so long and that maybe you should just cut it loose because it's not about you. And that, I, it was a really uncomfortable scene because at that point you can tell the director just was not hearing what Mark was saying because it was about Mark and it was about affecting his life and Mark explained it to him. Obviously Mark has worked everything out to the point where they all have to understand what happened, but you have to understand also that this tore this guy's life up a lot. Mm -hmm. So even when he went to talk with the guy, the scriptwriter who didn't admit it or did uh, agree to meet with him and talk with him, the director or the script guy said, "Yeah, you know, uh, I don't recall saying that, but if I did, I didn't mean it to hurt you in any way. I mean, it worked it out." But those are some uncomfortable scenes, and I'm glad that Mark was able to get in there and like confront them about it because you know. You can't all, get those years back. No, you can't get those years back, but it's also a way to understand someone else's perspective. Like, that guy might have said that as an offhand comment. Right. And maybe to deflect because he was feeling... And that's the thing. Like, I kind of understand the scriptwriter's point a little bit because, you know, he's just doing interviews. Mm-hmm. But... But he was the, trying to deflect the attention off of him. He right. felt like he was being criticized. Right. So he's like, oh, no, that... If you're getting gay out of this, it's it's definitely yeah, he from definitely the actor. used his sexuality mm-hmm. for that. But I had bigger problems with the director who just seemed kind of oblivious to the pain that Mark was going through with all this and I just thought that was a shame. But I mean they all once the director heard Mark talk about it, they worked it out. But it just one of those moments that stood out to me in the doc. But it's a very good documentary. Um it's worth checking out if you have Shudder. And this is just proving as human beings we need to listen to each other. Sometimes, even if you don't agree, just stop and put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Just stop and listen. That's all it's got to be. Yeah, right? All right, next block. New stuff coming at you all around. Gruesome, Carnegie, and Exhumed. Gruesome, a mind decayed. Here we go. Because of the boys 
Listening to the hordes of chaos only on Metal Tavern Radio. Pump it. This is what it is, okay? I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. Mr. Bruce Lee. He's one of my favorite people ever. Yeah, you and Always. I had a debate about who was bigger Bruce Lee fan, you or I. See, one thing that kind of makes us a good couple is I, I came into this relationship already liking metal, already liking kung fu movies, already liking Godzilla, and, you know, the football thing kind of happened just because he liked football, and I, I'm like, I the only football game I ever watched was the Ravens winning the Super Bowl just because it was a big deal in Baltimore. So he's like, yeah, well, we'll watch football. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll watch. We'll, we'll get you into football. No big deal. And I turned out to be a big fan. Mm-hmm. But for me, I, I'm, an, I'm an insomniac still. I was an insomniac when I was a kid. I would stay up all night as a teenager and then still have to get up and go to school and do school things and live my life. But what came on at, you know, 1 a.m.? Kung Fu movies. And I, I think I've seen tons and tons of them. And I, I fell in love with Bruce Lee a long time ago because he is so far ahead of his time. He is just a beautiful fighter. He was smart. He, he was like a creator of, of a scene. He was a creator. He brought fight choreography to the movies. Without Bruce Lee, you wouldn't have The Matrix. Without Bruce Lee, you wouldn't have Brotherhood of the Wolf. Without his eye and what he brought to cinema, you wouldn't have half of the things that we have now and that we've just come to really appreciate in movies. Yeah, it's, 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 it's very interesting. I was about seven when he passed, and so I remember the day, like, him, you know, the news bits, and they were replaying some of his movies at the time, so, like, that was kind of, like, my introduction into it, so probably, like, 1977 or whatever, and, you know, I'm just sitting there, and I'm like, you know, this guy is just incredible, like, just everything he's doing, and that sort of kickstarted my whole, like, 
love for martial arts, but then like about 1980 or so when I finally got a chance to see stuff like Five Deadly Venoms and all this other stuff, it just became like a bigger thing for me and just kept growing and growing. But at the top of the list is always Bruce. It always is because of many different things. So much so that I'm like ashamed to admit it, but yet not that when I was working the bookstore in the 90s, I actually bought like a lot of his uh, fighting technique books. Uh, and I've, I've, I've read Jeet, them. His Jeet Kune Do book uh, that he wrote. This guy was more than just a fighter. He was a philosopher. And he. It, it, it's really kind of strange because when you think about his backstory and the trouble growing up and having issues with fighting and all that stuff. How he, he, he was in like the original Fight Club. Remember they were right. showing that he and he he was taking clearly martial arts lessons when he was younger and um, he and one of the other students they would just go out and practice and beat the shit out of each other all the time. He'd come home with like black eyes and his parents were like you need to chill out buddy chill out. But the, the thing that gets pointed out and we're all talking about this uh 30 for 30 doc on ESPN oh, called yeah, sorry. Be Water. Uh, it's very good. Check it out if you got ESPN and can the, get it on demand or the whatever. The footage that is on there are things that you... Never saw you, Yeah, I mean, it's the pictures, the... He recorded a lot of things. Um, like, these are personal movies. Even stuff from when his sister or his daughter was young and mm -hmm. all that stuff, so... And it's, I think, part of it, like, they... He, you saw like where he was kicking the heavy bag, and he just would he would set up the camera. I think just so he could critique his himself, like mm -hmm. look at his his style, look at his form, see how he could be better. He's he's such an interesting person, and I'm so let down. When I was in Hong Kong, um, I really wanted to go to the Avenue of the Stars, see the Bruce Lee statue. It's kind of like, uh. The, in Hollywood, the the Walk of Fame, um, that's what they have in Hong Kong, and they have all the the famous uh, celebrities. Like there's a Jackie Chan star. I wanted to walk the whole thing, but it just it didn't work out. I my friends I was with were not interested in doing that, so it they didn't. just wanted to drink. Yeah, they just wanted to drink. It's what we do. But uh, one of the things that I learned about Bruce through this uh, doc was that he actually had done some acting prior that wasn't even martial arts related. Like, he was just doing regular uh, movies, basically. He, he was a child actor, even as a baby, which is something I never even knew. His his uh, parents, or his dad, was in the opera. Um, so his dad had a lot of connections. So he was able to kind of, that back to the Fight Club, he was trying to rein Bruce in and tell him, like, right. you know... We need you to work. You don't need to be getting into fights. We need you. So that, that that was very interesting to see that he really was, you know, in Hong Kong, it was very different. It was um, for for Bruce as a uh, a young man. He he really they were I don't want to say they were wealthy because his dad was taking care of like so many people yeah they really weren't they wealthy. were doing they were doing okay and Bruce was like really he was you know he had a job he was he was really he was he was going in the right direction and then um apparently he he had a lot of respect for his dad even when his dad sent him back to the US they wanted him because he was born in San, San Francisco and he wanted 
Bruce to go back. He had, they had friends in the U.S. and he wanted that could look after him, and he wanted to get him back there so that he could, you know, keep his American citizenship since he was 18. And you see Bruce coming in and, you know, teaching his friends, going to college. It's it's just amazing for a 32-year-old mm-hmm. how much he accomplished in his life. Yeah, well, we talked about it after that Bruce really, had he lived, would have got to see just how far, like, martial arts and how Asians in general, just movie-wise, it isn't just martial arts. Like, we watch now with, like, horror movies and everything else, how the Asian market has really exploded. I mean, America, since 2000, when you think of movies like The Grudge or The Ring, have been remaking those movies. Uh, not because they hate them, but because we have our own vision of what we want out of them. But there's all this influence now that's coming from these uh, Asian directors and you know fighters. I, I have like a nice collection of martial arts movies over the years now. Shaw Brothers. I, you know, about ten or so years. I just years ago I discovered like how many great movies I liked from that particular uh, production uh, group, and so I ended up buying a bunch of them. But uh, the other thing about Bruce was that he was not only uh, very relaxed, but he dealt with adversity really well, especially when it came to the Hollywood market because, you know, he came over, he had done some uh, series with the Green Hornet as Cato. Um, then when that got canceled, like, he found out very fast that it was hard for Asians to break into the American market because he came up with the idea between refined kung fu the show, and because people, the you know Americans thought that it wouldn't work because he was Asian. They were worried because of his accent. Accent, and they weren't quite ready for that kind of lead, so they went with Carradine, of course. And it was at that point that Bruce went back to Hong Kong and started doing movies again, and he broke through with The Big Boss, which made him an international uh, a star right away with them. Uh, obviously, when he came back to America, um, I think he was already with Linda at this point when he went to Hong Kong the first. Yeah, time. he was. He was. He met Linda in um, when they were so in one of the things, Seattle. So one of the things that we didn't really talk about yet was that Dating-wise, when he was dating Linda, they, he had a group of friends that he would hang out with of all nationalities and colors. So Yeah, he had his, his girlfriend is white. He's got black friends, Asian, uh, friends. Asian friends. But they would do this thing where they would go into like restaurants and stuff and sw- switch dates. Like Not really so much for anything beyond just being as dates, but just to see how the reaction was of other people. And obviously they would get looks and stares. So it was kind of like Bruce's way of testing what was going on. and But he was very, like, in interviews, he's very candid about understanding why he lost the role of Kung Fu, uh, despite not liking it. It wasn't like he was happy about it, but he understood what was happening and what the time was like at that time. So I thought that that showed a lot of maturity and understanding from his point of view, even though... You know, for us as Americans at that time, we're very close-minded about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So, but he also because they in Hong Kong after being in the U.S. for so long, they were kind of being like, "Oh, well, you're too American for Hong Kong, but you're too too Chinese for America." It was like this weird, like 
he he was trying to live in both worlds and he got got it from both sides the one thing that really i think helped kick off everything in his life was um the long beach i'm trying to read the, the long beach international martial arts um symposium and he was very young and that everybody who was anybody in martial arts and fighting was there and that like really started to showcase not just for martial arts in general but like athletes were seeing how you could really condition your body just by learning martial arts like um yeah you have to understand the he, basketball he, um, he have, yeah kareem. kareem yeah he he was in the game of mm -hmm. the game of death mm -hmm. and um he you know he learned under bruce lee and he really realized like you know he's a basketball player however he you know learning martial arts really helped him just improve his his life overall there were a lot of celebrities at the time that were basically tutelage under him uh even in inner dragon uh john saxon was one of his mm -hmm. students uh so it's like chuck norris he you know he and chuck norris had that that big uh scene and uh everybody just from seeing what he was bruce lee was very much a practice what you what you preach person he was very um I mean, clearly, I never met the guy, so I'm just going by everything I've read about him and everything I've seen, and you, it's just nothing but respect for him and his teachings and his his books, and I, I find that it's interesting to see how he took every, I guess, roadblock and just powered through it the best that he could because he's like... If it can't happen here, I'm going to do it in Hong Kong. And then it was right after he passed away um, that Enter the Dragon came out, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. And they the premiere was at uh, of, the Chinese Theater yeah. in Hollywood. I can't remember the, the name. But he they had to close down streets. And it was wrapped around the block. And they were saying, if, if Bruce could see this, like, you know, he's crossed borders he's he really I think one thing that Nick and I really agree about is that Bruce was really kind of ahead of his time in terms of his philosophy on life and with people because much like his style of Wing Chun which he learned from Ip Man uh, Bruce when Bruce created Jeet Kune Do it was basically taking parts of different types of fighting styles and philosophies and bringing them together and that's kind of how he approached people in general. Like, he always believed in everyone is equal. Everyone, you know, is the same. We're all in this together. And really, like, in this day and age with what's going on now, we should all be looking back to some of the stuff that he was saying and talking about because it's all relevant mm -hmm. to how we should be with each other and whatnot. And uh, he was just an amazing guy. Like, it's... I really... It sucks that he never lived beyond it. And then, of course, his son, Brandon, you know, similar kind of fate. But uh, just, yeah, just really crazy. It's a good doc, though. If it's, it's on ESPN. It's called 30 for 30. It's the B. Water, Bruce Lee story. Um, they usually have a lot of good docs. If you haven't seen the Michael Jordan one and the Bulls, that was really good. So check it out. It's definitely highly recommended by us. I mean, like, listen to that clip that we played before. Be, be like water. You know, 
go with the flow, but still be super powerful that you can break through a rock. Mm -hmm. All right, so our next block of music, a little bit of thrash and heavy metal coming your way. Mm -hmm. Last Night of Melomania, Crypt and Scully, or I should say just Crypt alone, uh, interviewed the band Paralysis out of New Jersey, just right up the road from us. Uh, they have a new record called uh, Mob Rules, I believe is out now. Mob Justice, excuse me. Uh, and they played a track from that, and the interview was great with, I think it was Ron and, uh, who's the bassist? Patrick. Ron and Patrick were on there, and it was a really good interview, and they talked about the new record, and it was really good. So if you haven't checked out that episode of Melomania, it's up posted now on Facebook and stuff like that for you. And we're going to use a track from their new record to kick off our next block. It's called Had Enough Paralysis. Here we go. Yeah. 
anime from Darken and you are listening to the Halls of Chaos only on Metal Tavern Radio. It just gets crazy. Yeah. We're talking about, of course, when Black Metal decides to like, have the pretty moments, and then it's like... Ugh. I always know what's going to happen. He, we're, he always randomizes his music when we're in the car, especially if we're on a long, long drive. He'll be like, okay, I'm just going to like put it, put it on random DJ, and we're driving in the car, and I hear something, and it's really pretty. It's like... She's always like, and I look at all right, him, when's it going to get crazy? Said, come on, gonna when are they going to just start banging on trash can lids? Let me know. <laughs> so it's our time for the rock block. Oh my goodness, the rock block. Neko has her pick of the week ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, some new stuff from Tokyo Blade uh, and Hanging Garden. The rest are like old classics. Uh, obviously, one of the tracks from L.A. Guns I got in here, uh, I was listening to it, and... The thing about the song arrangement, like, it, it doesn't sound like anything like Crazy Train from Ozzy, but the way that the solos are structured from Tracy Guns reminds me a lot of Randy Rhodes. I just thought that was an interesting thing because I think that, well, later on after the Rock Black, we're going to talk a little about uh, bands that fly under the radar. I think L.A. Guns is one of those bands. Yeah, because sometimes you'll you'll hear a band and they have, like, this maybe one or two hits and then you kind of forget about them, but then it's like, we'll get into that later. Cause, right. Because I have, I have one of mine that's like... Yeah, there's, there's like a slew of different bands you could come up with, but uh, L.A. Guns is one of those bands I think kind of represents that, and I was thinking about just how good Tracy Guns was and, you know, his part with, you know, how he was part of Guns N' Roses early on, etc. But uh, we're going to get kick-started here. Uh, new stuff for Hanging Garden. He usually does more of like... Kickstart uh, my heart? Uh, no. Uh, it does usually more like a doomish uh, death kind of band, but uh, they had this song in there called Welcome to Flame, which I thought was uh, really nice and would be a good entry to our rock block this night. Here we go.
Do you live life in the fast lane? Do you have the need for speed? Well, if you're a racing fan and want to be part of a winning team, then contact Carmichael Racing. Carmichael Racing is currently looking for sponsors for the upcoming champ and flat card season. You can be a part of a long tradition of racing as Paul and Rhea L. race to the finish line in Mardella Speedway at Diamond Head Arena in Gilbert, PA, March 13th to the 15th, 2020. They will also be racing at Hunterstown Speedway and Capital City Speedway in Ashland, Virginia. Racing runs deep in the blood at Carmichael Racing, and they are looking to gain sponsors for a new upcoming season. If interested, you can contact them at 443-202-3016. That's 443-202-3016. You can also find them on Facebook at SRChamp36. Carmichael Racing. Together you can soar as the engines roar.
From their new record, Dark Revolution. New stuff by Tokyo Blade. I yes, loved they're it. still around. I loved it, loved it. So now it's about that time. Neko's pick of the week. So this kind of goes along with our next topic. We're going to be discussing about the bands that kind of fly under the radar. I um, I love the, this band, and my at one point my aunt had made a comment that this was her favorite band, you know, growing up, and I'm like, you don't hear this that often. You don't hear someone say, Steve Miller Band is my absolute favorite band growing up, and I'm like thinking going through their catalog I'm like yeah these are some really pretty awesome songs like the music's good the singing is great and you just love the music like it's easy it's easy to like but unfortunately you know the 70s were just a treasure trove of of music rock disco even like the early like hip hop stuff like well I always find it like cause you know that was sort of my intro to rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as early as five, I can remember listening overnight as I went to bed. Uh, Zeppelin and, you know, Steve Miller would be in there. Gary Wright, Blue Easter Cold, stuff like that. <clears throat> and, um, yeah, I just, you know, Fly Like an Eagle, um, Rockin' Me. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously all great hits and like we were talking about earlier, like sometimes even with like LA Guns, when you're talking like the hard hair rock stuff, LA Guns doesn't get brought up quite as yeah, much. Yeah, it kind of gets like, like you're, it, it just keeps getting lower and lower tier, and you're like, well, you know, they're still good, but because some other, we were talking about this because we just played Boston. Um, Boston had three albums, am I correct? Three, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're like the '70s rock icons like they are the classic rock sound but you know steve miller has quite quite a catalog of music and yeah you know he was battling like bands like the eagles and mm, stuff like that that's so. that's the other thing too like there you you get the eagles out there and the eagles are just well i think that's part of it too is when we think about the 70s and 80s and even some of the 90s you have like a lot of these bands that were quote-unquote cornering the market because you know you only got fed what the radios would play you really and and a lot of times those songs were on repetition so i think and that's true like back in the day it would be like the i i guess that's what the publicists they would come to the radio stations and be like this is what you're playing and it was just based on like getting i mean i'm not saying we're not saying steve miller band never got anything out there clearly they were a great band but again this is one of my bands that fly under the radar now back to what you were saying i'm sorry i cut you off i'm sorry uh just that you know in this day and age with the internet and you know artists able to bypass a lot of the labels a lot of like you have podcasts like ours metal mania uh you can kind of just pass by the middleman and just give it directly to the listener himself so like one thing i've always argued about technology and the way we are today is that you're not relying on magazines to showcase your stuff like even when metal magazines were out there and they were like you know oh metallica has a new record out but you know there's all these other bands that you're barely talking about 
Well, that's sort of like modern day radio because even now, if you listen to modern day radio, I don't know half the bands that are on there. I know, and I feel so old because of that. And I, I teach dance, and like, I don't really feel bad because when I do tune in for just a split second, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not doing this. Change the channel. Well, back in the day, remember what you listened to kind of defined your like position in school and stuff you're like oh i listen to metal and alternative rock so you're gonna yeah but i think music's gotten so much worse (laughs) i you know yes and no and i like the kids that i teach in dance class they'll be like oh this is a new this is a new artist and i'm like hmm yeah 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 it's all right yeah Uh, i don't know but like it is interesting that, you know, like, I am a Steve Miller fan, so, like... But, again, how often do you listen to Steve Miller? Well, I'll listen to him, because I know him, but, like, if you were to discuss this with people about classic rock in general, they They would not, probably not come up. You would start talking about... probably, like, about, the 10th or 11th band that you would hear about. So, again, I, I started thinking about Steve Miller, because I, my, my Aunt Margie said that Steve Miller was, growing up, her favorite band, and, um... This song in particular, I love. It's a great song. Awesome. It's got that... Dun, 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 dun. And the problem is, everybody gets the chorus wrong. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of like uh, that commercial for Pour Some Sugar On Me and the guy's saying Pour, pour Some, some sugar, sugar Brahmin. Wrong, right. Yeah, Pour Some Sugar Brahmin. So, like, I love this song. Mainly because everybody... Fucks it up. Yeah, they fuck it up. They don't know what they're saying. And the name of the song is Jetliner. The Dream Police. <laughs> well, then, we're going to do that later. <laughs> we're going to talk about that later. But the, the, um, the song is Jetliner. And nobody gets the chorus right. They don't understand, like, they're saying Jetliner. They're, they think they're saying Hotel with a Light On. That was one that... So, for, for my pick of the week... We're going to listen to Steve Miller and Jetliner. Here we go. Attention, please. Be prepared for a musical transformation that you've never felt before. In a moment, we will bring you on a journey. Like there's no tomorrow. And we will break new ground. Hailing from the land below the wind. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. DJ Neko's pick of the week.
For a place to take care of all your automotive needs, then get in touch with Stauffer's Auto Service in Millersville, Maryland. Stauffer's takes care of all auto repairs, auto service, and great quality parts as well. Stauffer's is located at 8328 Veterans Highway, Suite E in Millersville. Be sure to call and check out all their service specials related to your automotive needs. Stauffer's is professional, friendly, and has highly qualified mechanics to do excellent work with prices that are fair and much better than what you would find in other automotive places. So call 410-729-0121. That's 410-729-0121. And tell them the newsman and his trusty sidekick, Neko, sent you Ah, uh, yeah, I just went to Stauffer's, in fact, to get that fucking mirror fixed. I love Stauffer's. They are, they're, they're honest, they're fair-priced, they are very friendly, and like, okay, so... They actually give a shit. Yeah, like, we, I don't know if they, they're not really, like, a general body shopper, but they do a little bit of everything, so... You know, after the drunken bicycle incident, you call up Stoffers and you're like, listen, can you replace a mirror on my wife's car? And they're like, sure, you know, no big deal. I had a friend of mine, she had a, a serious problem. She had a cracked engine block. Am I, is that the correct mm-hmm. term? Okay, mm-hmm. so she had a serious problem with her car and her car is about as old as mine, so 10 years old. She lives in Millersville. We don't even live in Millersville. We live... 30 minutes from Millersville and we take our cars to this place. So my girlfriend takes her car. She's thinking they're going to be like, yeah, it's going to be like $2,500 and it's going to be crazy. It was like $500 and she couldn't believe how inexpensive it was. And she lives in Millersville. So she's like, oh, great. I got a place right up the street now that I can trust and have my car serviced. And well, she's just like their work is guaranteed. They, if there's any problems, you can bring it back. And- well, with my brakes we i kept having problems with my brakes and i was taking it back to my old place over and over again 
finally we take it to Stoffers, and this is after multiple break, full break replacements, and that's not cheap. And they're like, they didn't replace the caliper like they told you they did. They, they replaced did the, other, the side. other side. And I'm like, holy shit. So... Yeah, that's... You, and then if you don't have your caliper working, you ruin your brakes. So I had to get another set of brakes. Right. Yeah, it was just like, it's almost like it was a scam. Mm. You know? But the problem is, when you're fucking around with brakes, that becomes a, a really big hazard. Yeah, that is a safety thing. Right. So, like, it's just, you know, we've talked about it before. It's maddening about how all that went down. But nevertheless, uh, they're a great group of people. If you're in Maryland... And you're it's in really Millersville, <laughs> off of uh, Veterans Highway. Mm -hmm. So if you're in that area and you want, like, well, we actually drive like 30 minutes to get to them just because we really like their work. So check them out, Stoffers Auto. Uh, definitely worth it. Uh, before that, ending our rock block was 311 down. Neko and I were talking about how the bands that fly under the radar, well, we talked about LA Guns a little bit. 311 kind of plays into that because when you think of the alternative rock generation, you know, it's kind of like you have your A grade, B grade, and C grade. Now, that doesn't mean that 311 is a B or C grade band. Like, they have a nice catalog of uh, records. And they're fun. And I really like them a lot. They're one of my favorite. Transistor, I love what they do with the cross between like the hip hop, the rock, and the reggae they got going on in that particular. And you record. know, I love that because I love Sublime. Right. So, but and that's another one, Sublime. Like everybody only thinks of their their last album and me. I'm like, um, what about Forty Ounces to Freedom? Just in general, though. But like when you think of like alternative rock, or you know, AIC, Nirvana, uh, Soundgarden, all set. But Three Eleven doesn't get brought up all that much. And I thought I think they have a pretty big, meaty catalog of stuff out there. So that was down from their blue album blue that's what i call it from their self-titled 1995 album uh just a blue record um one of the earlier hits so they actually went on to put out two three or four more records after that i think uh but i really like that band a lot i do um but other bands that we were kind of discussing steve miller was in that discussion mm -hmm. as we talked about um, other bands like Doc and or Wasp, when we talk about the 80s hard rock and hair rock stuff, uh, oftentimes those bands kind of fall under the radar because you're they thinking be, of, They play like, like second tier to, you know, Guns N' Roses or... Right, and it's not that they're worse than those bands. In fact, some, like, Guns N' Roses, as big as they were, weren't one of my more favorite bands of the era, so... I can tell you how big Guns N' Roses were for me as a early teen, like... 13 that would have been around like use your illusion use your illusion too and the they axel rose wore these pants <laughs> you know where i'm going so they were like these stonewash pants but the front looked like they had leather chaps on them everybody wore them when i was you know 92 93 and i'm like huh clearly so, you see what kind of influence these top-tier bands have, but then when you start thinking about these bands that fly under the radar, you're like, they're not any less talented, but it's just, maybe if they would have come out at a different time, when these other bands were kind of, like, taking over the airwaves and the influence on people, they might have fared better. 
Well, yeah, and I think, like, Never Enough by L.A. Guns, like I was saying, the, the structure of the song and how Tracy's doing his solos is very reminiscent of uh, Randy Rhodes and Crazy Train, mm-hmm. uh, where he's mixing in the solos throughout the song. But, like, at the time it, that Harry Rock was all that big, you know, you thought Rat, Van Halen, Def Leppard, uh, Poison, all these other bands. And so L.A. Guns were just kind of, like, falling under that radar, uh and not really looked at as like one of your top profile bands, but they had a lot of hits during that time. But you know, same with Wasp. Um, you know, they were a little bit more heavy metal driven. Same with Sabotage. But uh, you just don't think much of those bands at that time because of everything else that was going on. So it was kind of an interesting topic that Neca was thinking about with the bands that we don't normally think about when we start discussing this stuff. You know, with for me, like my number one band that flies under the radar that I love. And you love is Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody. When you say Cheap Trick, the only thing people think about is "I want you to want me." I, I or the flame or that came out a little bit later. So they're like, "I want." Yeah, that's Cheap Trick. But we went to a Cheap Trick concert. It was one of our best nights. We were just talking about this all, while the music was playing. Like, it was our favorite date I think we've had ever. I think like. If you would put, we've gone to so many great places and done so many. Fun yeah, it really things. wasn't much to the evening because I don't think they played like an extremely long set. It was just like it was just them. It was a Thursday. It was like a weird. Yeah. We we went to Ramshead. It I had was, a pretty good crowd though. Was, we it was fun and I'm we loved every song and then we went to Burger King and got Whoppers and fries. <laughs> so it was a good good end to the back evening. when I was packing on the pounds. <laughs> Me too. Gotta restock the fridge. <laughs> <laughs> but I think Cheap Trick, you know, they're a great band, and I think they deserve a little bit more... Uh, oh, without a doubt. Like, when people talk about Cheap Trick, you know, obviously they talk about the hits, but, like, one of my favorite records and one of my earlier first cassettes was One on One with the song She's Tight and stuff like that on it. And that whole record is really good. Like, you don't really think of them as having, like, other hits and stuff so it's always fun when you can dive into a record and then discover that they have all these other great tunes on it that could have been hits but they just you know didn't get released or whatever it's the commercialized you Mm -hmm. know how we were you know pre-napster pre-internet you know there was it was difficult to really get your shit out there and it was all about who you know, who your promoter was, who your manager it really is because when you think of I was thinking about this the other day with Def Leppard when they released Hysteria they had like seven hit singles off that record. Mm-hmm. And it was, Hysteria's great. We love Def Leppard. And it was doing so well. And I don't think I've ever seen this since then. They went three whole years. They had a record ready to go like a year, t- a year or two after Hysteria. But because Hysteria was still selling so well, they just kept putting it off. And then when a came out, yeah, they right. were touring still. Right, so that record like was just monumental in terms of like the amount of hits they were able to put out, the MTV exposure, radio exposure. So, what's another band that you think is flying under the radar right now? Now you said Three Eleven. We we mentioned Steve Miller. We mentioned Cheap Trick. But like, even today, there there's bands that are flying under the radar that. Well, I have to kind of look at it from a point of view of, like, from metal, I can't really do it because really the metal is underground as it is. So, like, a lot of the bands I would name are already would never be popular anyway. 
Yeah, because if you say metal, people are like, oh, you like Metallica? You you, you like, uh, I don't know, ACDC? People, believe me, still people still think ACDC is heavy metal, which I do too, but I love ACDC. But these are like your, right. you know, this is the top of the pyramid that everybody knows. When you're trying to dig deep going down into the basement, it's it's hard to like say, hey. I would say probably more would be like, and I'm really kind of drawing a blank for the most part, but the post-rock kind of stuff. Um, I think. I think Gary Newman's I, another one that that oh, kind of flies under the is. radar. Like, but also the Deftones, despite the fact they were kind of bigger in the '90s, their later records are so much better and better written. That and I you think, think they've grown musically. Right. So I don't. You know, not many people are still paying attention to them because of the whole new metal thing kind of passing. But they're doing more like post-metal, post-rock stuff. And their albums are very solid. Like I just, they're one of those bands that I, I really anticipate listening to every time they release a record. But because you think they keep getting better, you hear it yeah. every every album. They're like, you're better, you're better, you're great. Like as much as I like some of the songs off Around the Fur, like you know, um, what was the opening track? I forget, um, Summer something, but uh, my own Summer. But but now, I think Deftones kind of got foreshadowed or, or overshadowed by like Marilyn Manson. You know what I mean? And well, Slipknot, yeah, like yeah. that whole. Well, there was like this period where you had Limp Bizkit, Corn, Deftones, Manson. They were all kind of like there, and then over the next five to ten years, Corn and Limp Bizkit still kind of had their way, but Deftones kind of started falling behind. Like White Pony, after White Pony, Deftones was just kind of White like, Pony was their album. Like they just kind of went off the map, but they were still putting out records, and I had to go back and listen to some of their catalog to find like, oh wow, they've actually improved a lot doing this and that uh their cover of the car's drive is mm. fantastic so um yeah so they're they're definitely one of those bands i think that people just kind of forget about um but they're still there <laughs> they're still making music uh speaking of bands like wasto uh there's a couple of passings that we have to pass along which unfortunately sucks it does suck Bob Kulik, uh brother of Bruce Kulik, who played with Kiss i did not notice about Bob though he actually auditioned for Kiss before they were even known. So he ended up losing to Ace Freely, ironically, who came up after him for the audition. Uh, he passed at age 70, I believe. But he uh, he played with... He did play with Kiss at one point touring, and he played for Wasp, Alice Cooper, Lou Reed, Meatloaf, and Michael Bolton. So he's he's that and type... And Diana Ross. He's, he's the type of musician that he can, you know, I mean... Diana Ross, Meatloaf, Kiss. It's like a full, complete 180 of each other. And he's he was able to... Well, we've kind of talked about it before where we've taken guitarists who play like Nuno Betancourt from Extreme. He actually has played with Rihanna on some of her records. Uh, this actually happens a lot. There's apparently a few guitarists and, and recorders who go out there and write pop hits for some of these singers that we see. So you don't normally think about that happening, but that's what happens. So it's kind of interesting how that plays out. But yeah, Bob was a pretty big uh, guy in terms of like some of the acts that he played, played with and recorded with. Um, don't think he ever found like his own home like Bruce did when Bruce finally played with Kiss. I think it was off the Asylum record in 95. Um... But yeah, he passed away, unfortunately. Uh, but you know, he was seventy, so I mean, it's at least a good life. <laughs> I mean, seven is good, eighty's better. 
another passing Sucks. is Steve Priest, founding bassist and singer for Ball uh, Sweet. Sweet. Yeah, uh, Ballroom Blitz is one of their songs. That, well, this is another band that flies under the radar. A lot. A lot. What was that song that you... Uh, that, Fox on the Run. Yeah, he was I'm one like, of the writers for that. I'm like, we forgot about that. We, but we, well, I told you too. No run. Sugar Tonight by Bang. I played not too long ago. Mm-hmm. That was a band I just did not even really realize about. Um, so yeah, uh, Steve Priest is gone at 72. Just basically looks like age was catching up with him at that point. Um, but yeah, I love like a lot of Sweet's old music. Um, very influential to a lot of heavy and rock bands. We were talking about this on another episode. Like, we were watching some sweet videos on YouTube, and you're like, look at how they're dressed, look mm-hmm. at how they're, you know... Sweet was kind of ahead of their time, almost. Like, because they were... A lot of their early 70s stuff was a little bit more progressive than what you would Yeah, think. it was interesting, because, you know, everyone looks at Black Sabbath as reading the devil's note but really sweet in general was already starting to do the whole like leather Mm -hmm. and like the riffs that they were using for stuff like action so they were already kind of dabbling into all that um they have like you know they're a very big influence on what bands like t-rex sabbath zeppelin all of them eventually became and they don't get quite the recognition as some of these other bands so they are a perfect example of a band that flies on the radar because uh, you just don't think about it. like a lot of times when I first heard the song Action, it was through Black and Blue, and I did not know that it was a cover at the time. I thought Black and Blue was the original artist. So after you know a few years, when I was researching everything, I'm like, oh wow, they're not really because Def Leppard did a cover of it as well. So I'm thinking Def Leppard's doing Black and Blue, but they're both doing Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> it's a cover of a cover. Right. So it's just kind of funny. I mean, it's. It sucks, and I think we talk about this every third episode, when you see members of the metal and rock community getting older, getting sick, you wonder what's going to start, excuse me, filling the void. Like, you know, look at Ozzy, how old he is, and he's he has Parkinson's now, and these are like pioneers what's gonna happen next you know i i it just it 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 does kind of i mean i'm i'm 39 so i'm not quite 70 but you you know what i mean like you start starts it gets in your head right your mortality you're like oh my god if if ozzy who has snorted fire ants (laughs) is now has parkinson's and and he's sick it, it's when a, Ozzy's saying he's not going to be around much longer, you know the shit's in mm-hmm. the van at this point. I mean, it's it's insane. Meanwhile, I, Keith Richards is still running around like nothing's a problem. <laughs> Steven Tyler looks like he's somebody's uh, grandma. With oh, I love Steven Tyler. He has no shame. He has a great voice, number one, still. like He was just dicking around one day while we were under quarantine and like singing and stuff on uh twitter and he's like bah, bah, bah. it was very very good but he doesn't care he gets a hundred facelifts a year he dyes his hair whatever color he wants and i'm like you do you and how old is steven tyler in his 70s like Peace. he doesn't care he's like i'm steven tyler i'm steven fucking tyler i'm steven motherfucking tyler i'll do whatever i want like 
and I hope when I'm older, I have that attitude. I'm not, I, like, I don't want to be reserved. Well, I'm going to be that way. <laughs> we'll be doing this podcast till I'm, like, you'll be wearing your, You'll be wearing your camo shorts <laughs> until you're 80. You're like, honey, give me my, give me my vest. Yeah. <laughs> the battle vest. I'm going to wear it while I'm doing my shows. All right. So we're going to get back to some music. Music. Some new stuff from Fairyland. Also, Ailstorm, who does... Fucked with an anchor, which is one of my favorite tunes. They, they have a new record called Pirate. Well, it's not called Pirate Metal Drinking Crew, but that's the song that I'm playing for you. This is the best song ever. Yeah. Gravedigger, the heart of Scotland. So you got some great shit coming This is a really good block. Yes. Perfect block. And here we go. Heart of Scotland. Gravedigger.
Hi, we are Bloodfield, and you're listening to Metal Tavern Radio. Alright, DJ Nubis. And DJ Nico. Back with the Metal Tavern Radio Podcast, episode 67. That was Fairyland with Across the Snow from their brand new record. So, so, we wanted to get to a doc that we watched last night, I think it was. Yeah, before you went out and got plastered. <laughs> she had uh, grinded in her own grindcore kind of way. That's what we do. Girls need marks. That's what we do. So there's a new doc out. It's only on YouTube, so I don't know how long it's going to be there. So for those of you who are listening to this and you know decide you want to watch it, try to get to it as soon as possible because it may be taken down at some point but it's on youtube it's called slave to the grind it's a doc about the grindcore scene and the early starting of it and everything else has a lot of interesting information in there stuff that i learned like i'm not i've never been like the biggest grindcore fan but obviously because i'm a big napalm death fan carcass pig destroyer so i like a lot of that stuff, but there's stuff just even before that that I was never even aware of. Um, so basically, you got some interviews with Napalm Death, Terrorizer, Brutal Truth, um, Anal Cunt. I think the Anal Cunt thing was like I I I didn't know, so I I really don't know much about the band, but they were they really dug deep on yeah. Anal Cunt. Well, because you know Putnam, the singer, was. Very controversial. Uh, the thing about Anal Count was, I guess they pointed out, was when they started, it was just basically noise. Like, that's all they really wanted to be, was just noise and angry. And Putnam was the kind of frontman who would just poke the bear with anybody. It didn't matter who you were. They were showing, like, fights mm-hmm. and stuff breaking out at their at their concerts. Like, people getting beat up. Well, and that's the thing, like... I believe Scott Hole of Pig Destroyer was once part of this group at some point, but one of the things pointed out by the the remaining members of Anaconda was that, you know, Putnam, they say, was mainly just doing it for shtick, like, as far as the band was concerned. Uh, other people who had known him and other bands said that he was actually that way. Like, there's just this conflicting information about whether he was really a good guy or not. Uh, but... Some of the things he did, like doing the Sig High and talking a lot of shit, mm-hmm. very sexist, very racist. He he would, like I said, he poked the bear with anybody. But I don't know, like Neko, I don't know much about Anal Cunt because I've never been a fan of the band. Um, I knew of them. I knew what they were about. I knew they made a lot of crazy titled songs. They were just very crazy in general. So, and and wasn't it them that they had? like the album where they had like all these really tiny short songs and and it was like ended up being like 88 songs or something yeah. ridiculous yeah yeah they're like we need a side b <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so they were one of the bands that were focused on obviously um napalm death another one which to my surprise would actually the band itself had started in 1981 yeah we didn't re- and they were kids yeah, kids like yeah, 14 Nick 15. Bolin and another gentleman who was interviewed I can't remember his name offhand were actually some of the original members of the band and they were playing obviously it's not surprising they were playing more punk 
uh, type grind and grindcore itself. Uh, a lot different than what the band eventually became. But obviously, uh, Daypalm is very influenced by the punk sound, so that's why we have what they do now, mm-hmm. anyway. Um, obviously, at one point, Napalm had Lee Dorian of Cathedral and Bill Steer of Carcass, who went on later to create Carcass, uh, were in the band for a while for Scum and some of the earlier Napalm Death releases. And then, of course, Barney came in and took over the vocal duties, etc. And history is like that. Um, some interviews with Danny Lilker from Nuclear Saw Brutal Truth. Uh, the funny thing is, I remember seeing, which nowadays, when I think back, like, the bill that I watched was really, like, better than I even imagined it back then. Mm-hmm. I saw them in 92 with Napalm Death, uh, Carcass, and Cathedral. So you figure <laughs> all these big names on Earache were touring together in 92, and, it, like, it was a fantastic show. Barney still had hair. Uh, Long hair. He's has hair. Right, he, right. he just trimmed it short. Right. He's like the rest of like me. He had to like just come down with age and like cut some of that shit off. Too damn hot. Otherwise you're rocking a skull or some shit. You know what? It happens. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, there's a little bit of talk about the fallout with Earache. Um, that was a big deal. Especially like, for Brood of Truth. Like, I didn't know that much about Brood of Truth's relationship with Earache, but apparently... That had become a bigger issue for them, even more so than maybe Napalm and the rest, because I always remembered, obviously, the advertisements in the magazines for their records being released, but apparently Danny and company didn't feel like the label was really pushing them as hard as they could or promoting them. And really, you kind of, at that time, you had to really rely on your labels to do that for you. Mm-hmm. Like, it was no internet, wasn't any, like mass media appeal so you were at the mercy of like whatever magazines were deciding to do interviews with you i mean danny had come from nuclear assault when he did brutal truth so it wasn't like he was kind of like a a household name at that point Mm -hmm. but the thing is like you know with labels aren't giving you the attention you need then you have to kind of go elsewhere and that's eventually what happened for them uh, they ended up moving to another label because um, at the time they were American band and Eric is in UK. So, but I remember something from Black and Lawless like years before when he was talking about how at the time that hair rock and hard rock was really big that you know labels would come out and they would just start signing like ten bands no matter if they're good or bad and just if one of them stuck they were good like but that's a terrible business model to go yeah with. right. Because, you know, you really want to make sure the shit that you're signing is worth it because you're putting out more money than making. So, uh, But it's a very cool documentary and uh, a lot of interesting facts in there. Uh, some footage also from... Um, the early footage is insane. Like, we're watching this and I'm like, they're literally playing in someone's basement. And, and, and somebody had recorded it and it's really cool. Yeah, it was Repulsion. That was mm-hmm. like early stuff from Repulsion, which was in there. And uh, it, it's it's as if you were, like, growing up with them at that point. Like, they're just there's, like, just maybe 15 to 20 kids down there and the band is playing and they're doing their thing. And they were, you know, one of the originators of the grindcore sound. So, like... That's one of my favorite things that I saw in, in the documentary and, and kind of, like mirroring to my life i 
I never got to do that until recently when we went to a house show for Nomos. Like, I'm sure you've done it many times, but me, like, every time I've seen a band, it's been, like, to at be a honest, bar I, I or... Did, yeah, I didn't really do it that much as a kid. I mean, I, obviously with Grey Haven, when, I only went there when they were practicing... But that was only a couple of times. It wasn't like they were playing any shows. So I didn't really... When it came to, like, rock parties at houses, like, really, No Moss is really the biggest one I've done. And that was... And you've done it a couple of times, because I haven't right. been home. But when we did the one, uh, I don't know, it's been, like, eight months now, maybe? It was a lot of fun. And I'm like, oh, I understand why these house parties are so much fun now. And... I mean, it wasn't anything like it's. It's not like it was this beautiful catered uh, event, and they were passing around hors d'oeuvres. It was like a total like metal place shit show. <laughs> yeah, like we were drinking beer, and it's like, oh, if somebody's beer runs out, somebody else has some beer, and we're gonna have a good time. And oh, are we hungry? Should we order pizza? Uh, what should we do? Like it. It was just a lot of fun, and for someone who's getting older. It made me feel like I was 19 again. Yeah, you, you think about, like, you know, I, in 90, I saw Priest and Megadeth open up for him at that, that year. And, mm -hmm. like, big arena with, you know, all these fans. And, you know, as great as that is, and as great as, like, some bands are, like Slayer and Priest being live, uh, there is something more intimate when you have like smaller clubs with these bands. Like when I saw Napalm Death and all of them, that was at the 9:30 club. That was very a small club, mm -hmm. so you know that's you know that's kind of why I like the sidebar. Um, right. When we go to the sidebar, it's a big deal, but you can only fit so many people in there. But it is one of those. It's kind of like Baltimore's CBGBs. It's one of those tiny, tiny clubs. But every time somebody's coming through. And as much as I hate to say it, like, as much as I love Soundstage and even Ramset to some point, like, those kind of clubs, like, Sidebar, they, they need to be saved because they don't make near the money that some of these uh, other clubs do. And so, if you're thinking in terms of, like, because I know you brought up an article, we haven't, we're not going to get too much into about the, the venues. The yeah, they're, they're saying, like, 70 to 80 percent of music venues may not survive beca from being closed because they have to recoup four months of being closed, blah, blah, blah. So, you have these venues. Now, Ramshead and, and Soundstage are in prime real estate, so you're, I'm sure their mortgages are off the charts, but... But they also cater to more than just rock and metal. Like, if you're going to be a venue that is in a prime area and you, you know, even though you might showcase a lot of metal bands and stuff like that, but if you're really going to make money, you're going to make it doing, I'm sorry, hip-hop artists well, I mean, or yes, regular si rock bands. Soundstage band. has everyone. There's, there's hip-hop there. Soundstage even has the, the Thunder from Down Under, which is a, uh Australian stripping troupe, so... <laughs> Male stripping, I should say. And Definitely be skipping that. <laughs> but I, the thing I love about and the sidebar is in pretty prime real estate too because they're right by the courthouse. That's why they're called the sidebar. You know, because when you're in trial, you say sidebar, whatever. So, but it's tiny and wonderful and grubby, and we love it. Same thing with Autobar. It's kind of in that weird area where, like, it's 
a bar, but then there's residential behind it, and it's a very what, what it was some kind of black metal show that we went to see at the auto bar, uh, maybe about. Oh, two it was um, Archcoat. Mm, yeah. So we went, we, we went there, and it was kind of like on a whim, and it. it we went up because they have like a little terrace and yeah. we're watching and I'm like, I feel like we're VIP almost because we're, <laughs> we're up at the top and we're watching and it's those type of clubs need to need to survive because if you don't have that, you're not going to have live music. You're not going to have the ability. I mean, because the larger clubs, they have the ability to be uh we're not going to do this. We're going to we're going to cater to what we know sells a million tickets, but sidebars like I only need to sell 125 tickets because that's our max capacity. So they want to get these Who was it that we saw at the sidebar and you're like this is the first time I've ever seen them and it's amazing. Um Wormwitch. Oh yeah. yeah. Wormwitch. And you're like, I've never seen them, and I'm literally two feet from them. Yeah, so, and I was, that's the I was standing in front of the guitarist, and I'm just like, yes. This is the wonderful thing about these type of clubs, because the stage is, like, there. Yeah. It's, it's not like you have this stage, and it's far away. I mean, it's so small that the singer's generally, like, for Nomas, he's out in the audience with you, because, like, there's just not enough room up there. But we're getting kind of sidetracked. Sorry, um, sorry. Just, you know, on YouTube, like I said, it's called Slave to the Grind. It's a grindcore documentary. Definitely check it out. It's like an hour and 40 minutes, so it's, it's definitely worth your time. And uh, just check it out. One other thing we want to get to is a gentleman named Roderick Totentaz for Dark Souls United at WordPress gave his rankings of the Sepultura records, and I've always liked I was going to say, you're a Sepultura expert, and, I mean, that was one of our first bonding moments, talking about Roots Bloody Roots, remember? Well, and I was thinking about that the other day when you and I first met, and you, obviously you told me you were a Static X fan, but then you started naming off Fear Factory, Sepultura, and I'm like, mm, that big <laughs> wood, you know? <laughs> so, the first time I got into <laughs> his car... He turns on the car, and I was like, is this Sepultura? And he's like, how well, do you, yes, how, how yes, do you know is. about Sepultura? I was like, who doesn't know about Sepultura? Right, who doesn't <laughs> know about Sepultura? <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Roderick uh, goes through even uh, modern-day Sepultura records, ranking them. Now, I'm not going to worry about the rest of them, because we all know that most post-Mac stuff isn't going to fall down further the list, but he's got some interesting things. Uh, once he starts getting up near the top. Um, basically, we're going to go with the top four because uh, I agree and disagree with some of it. Not all of it. Uh, but at number four, he had uh, Chaos AD. I no really hard feelings there with that. I'd probably put that at three rather than four, but who, who's picky, you know? Uh, now, he comes up with a, a surprise shocker at number three, which is Quadra, the newest one from Sepultura. Uh, it's a good record. I do like Quadra a lot, although I think he put, uh, what is it, fuck, excuse me a moment, Machine Messiah probably at like 8 or 9, which I think is much better than Quadra. That's just personal taste, though. Uh, at 1 and 2, you can interchange these and I'd still be happy. Uh, his order doesn't bother me one bit. I agree with the top two choices. Number 2, he had a rise. 
and number one was beneath the remains. But you, like I said, you can interchange those two at one or two, and it wouldn't make a difference for me. Well, well what's what is your number one? It'd be either one of those. Really? Yeah. Those two, you agree? Okay, that's cool. Beneath the cool. Rain is the first record I ever heard from them, and the thing is, between Beneath the Remains and Arise, there is like a change in sound and production. Um, beneath the Remains is almost more like raw. It's not as raw as schizophrenia, but it's it's raw in terms of how it goes. Like once Arise happened, it, the production with Scott Burns just got stronger, and uh, you can really hear it because Scott Burns did a lot of the death metal thrash releases around that time in the early 90s and late 80s mm -hmm. so you can definitely hear the mature sound there and the writing uh this kind of goes back to when you're saying the matured sound this kind of go goes back to there was a quote in slave to the grind where they say metal bands they work to perfect their sound and and perfect their yeah. instrumentality and they want to be better punk was always about just the it message. was the message you're right so when you're saying this like again you're like the production got better they're working harder to improve their sound and and that, that kind of does speak volumes to to what the documentary do, uh, documentary said now, I should say, I think Burns did do Beneath the Remains, too, but for whatever reason... That's a couple of years difference, and, and well, you learn things, and you grow, so... Right, and I think that part of it just... Uh, I think at the time, too, Scott was kind of learning the ropes as well. Like, he, like for whatever reason, he had done, like, a death record, and I think maybe Morbid Angel, because he, he was out of Florida a little bit, so... A lot of those bands, like... Once, when he's out of Florida, was he doing obituary stuff? Yeah, too? I think that he was basically kind of like Peter Tiger again. You get... And Devin, like, you get... When the rumor starts that you can produce good records and the sound comes out the way you want it, then all of a sudden you're, like, the most sought-out person to do the records. For a while, Peter was like that. Devin was like that. Scott, during this time, was definitely like that. He has, like, a lot of records. I think he did some Cannibal Corpse records, stuff like All these, like, Florida bands. So, when it comes to Sepultura, like, you know, obviously, Beneath the Remains stands out a lot uh, as being the first record I heard from them, and I was I fell in love with them immediately. Arise, I was there the day it came out, got both the CD and cassette. Um, Chaos, same thing, although you can tell with Chaos, they were starting to go a little bit more mainstream in terms of how they were changing their sound with the tribal stuff a little bit. I do. I like that tribal sound, though. The only, the only problem for Chaos for me is, like, once you get to, after Biomech, it kind of just drags off. It's, like, filler at that point. Uh, Beneath the Remains and Arise have, like, everything is great on those. I love every sound. Um, and, of course, Roots, and then we all know the history of that. But... <laughs> Uh, but, you know, his list is really actually pretty good uh, in the way he put it together. And how did you find this? Uh, it was on Facebook, just posted up there. The guy was asking for any kind of comments on his article, and I was like, well, I really don't have much to complain about, brother. Uh, I might take uh, Machine Messiah over the quadra but it's not like anything i would you'd like flip to. that you'd be like put yeah machine oh, i'd probably put even machine or quadra at like five or something like a lot of people hold a lot of respect for morbid visions or what was the other one at the time schizophrenia and all that i or bestial just devastation as well i had the both of those on the same record but 
those records are like so raw and max is not even singing on those so like they had a different singer at the time so musically they're okay uh I don't listen to those records all that much. Same with Schizophrenia. Outside of Troops of Doom, which I thought the the remake of that song on the Dead Everything Sells single was better than the original version. So it's just a matter of taste, really. Um, some people put Schizophrenia higher. Um, but I think the way this guy organized it is pretty fair all the way around. Uh, even has, like... Which I don't remember this record too much. The mediator between Head and Hands in 2013. Like I, it's produced by Ross Robinson, who did all the corn stuff early on. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't remember too much from that record. It might be good. I, I do like Quadra and Machine Messiah a lot. Is the last two that they did. Uh, so obviously Derek Green and company are doing things right the way they want to. So yeah. It's hard because you know, you're kind of in the shadow. Of the Cavaleras, so you're kind of like... Well, it's funny because they're out there now putting together tours where they're touring for, like, both the first, you know, Beneath the Rains and Arise. So, mm -hmm. like, you know, for guys that wanted so bad to leave Sepultura behind, they sure want to revisit that shit a lot, <laughs> you know. So, I, I don't know, maybe it's because the band now doesn't play older stuff. Like, I, I've seen Sepultura in years. So I don't, I don't, I can't remember when I saw, when I went with John from Nomos to Tattoo the Earth in 2001 or two, I think, Sepultura was there with Green, and I don't remember them playing older material. They may have, I just don't remember it. I think they might have played Desperate Cry, I can't remember. But, you know, they have such a huge catalog now with Green, more so than they had with Max. That they probably don't touch much of the older stuff. I don't know if they do or how much. So when when uh, did did uh, Max leave? After Roots, and it was funny because Against, which I think is a halfway decent record, but that was written before Green joined. Ari had all the stuff written up, uh, so I think they you know thought at one point Max would be still be there, but once Max left, Green came in on Against, did that, and that was like ninety eight. So. From 98 till present day, Green's been there, so you're looking... That's, I mean, I graduated yeah, I graduated in 1998, so it's it's been quite a while. Right. And he's done pretty good. He, they've managed to still build up a, a pretty solid following, and even such as ourselves, you know, we can find a love for both the old stuff and some of the newer stuff. I, I always prefer the older stuff just because I think it's nostalgic and it's my my youth and mm -hmm. everything else so and that's kind of what happens too a lot of times you're like you kind of focus on a, a time in your life and you could listen to a song and it puts you back right at that second so you know with you listening to Sepultura you're like oh I feel like I'm back in Colorado in my condo and well and it's just the type of music like you know they kind of went more into like a, a metalcore thrashy thing whereas before it was more death thrash and the sound is different I always no matter I, if I don't listen to much soulfly and all that nowadays Max's voice is unique mm -hmm. he's kind of like Ozzy and you know Rob it's, even when you hear them you know who they are so it's just one of those things. I really like Max as a vocalist. So as a band, they were quite great. You know, I always loved it. But one thing for me, like, um, a guy I dated before you, Matt, 
you remember, you you met you, we all worked together because but he was the biggest Soulfly fan like always Soulfly Soulfly and Static X and Sublime so that's why we got along so well but it you when you said the uniqueness of the voice I think anyone who is a fan of Max that's what they say and that's kind of what Matt said too he's like whatever Max does you know it's him because he has like that sound yeah when he did uh, Kill or Be Killed with some of the guys from Diligent Spike Plan and uh, Mastodon uh, that little collaboration you, when you hear him come in with those vocals you know it's him like it's just so clear I think you know this could be a topic for another day, but we could start thinking about what vocalists you know. Like, you hear Max, you hear Bruce Springsteen, you hear, you know what I mean? Like, you can, you know it's that that singer because they have such a unique sound we'll to them. We'll do our version of a mass singer. <gasps> we could! Holy shit! That's a great idea. <laughs> Alright, well we're going to get back to some music. Uh, check it out. It's on WordPress. Uh, Dark Souls United. Uh, pretty cool. He got, he's got little blurs for each album that talks about like a little bit about the record itself. And check it out. It's worth it. All right, back into the music. Uh, got some more thrash coming away, but this one a little bit. Some stuff with black, some heavy metal thrash, and then we're gonna get some new Behemoth, Exalba, and then Task Force Beer to close it out. So we'll be back in a little bit.
DJ Newis. And DJ Nico. Back with you, Military Radio Podcast, getting ready to close out this edition of the Hordes of Chaos. I love DJ Newis. Well, I thank everyone for tuning in. Hope you all enjoyed it. Hopefully, kept you entertained. Let us entertain you. Do we? Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? <laughs> <laughs> A lot of great music we played for you today. Uh, special thanks to Sky Nielsen Promotions, Krypton Scully from Metal on Mania. We might be visiting him tomorrow. I haven't cleared that up yet but uh be- hopefully i get out of work early and then we drive on down we both live in maryland but they live in southern yeah, yeah they live in southern maryland and we live right outside of baltimore so it's a, a little bit of a drive but, but that- it just shows you how much great metal and rock is coming out of the fucking maryland maryland is is pretty rocking i mean like look at look at uh frederick frederick is a little like small Smallish town, but it's like a hotbed for some metal acts and stuff. Well, I'm just talking about our shows. I'm well, just giving I'm, ourselves some kudos. Well, okay, I'll pat you on the back. I'm sorry. But we, we, we really enjoy doing this, and hopefully uh, we'll have more to come. Um, yeah, well, you guys have to appreciate that Nico's actually battling through a hangover, so she's drinking more to make I'm up I'm drinking for more to make, yeah, for my hangover that I had because I had But five, I'll tell you what, though. This is the great thing about my wife. Oh, my God. Is that she was kind of like, eh, like earlier. And like, well, I can do this show by myself. She's like, no. Nope. I'm going to be there. Put me in, coach. Yeah. So I have to ask you today, what was your favorite topic that we, we spoke about? Because we had so many good topics. I think mine was the Bruce Lee topic. Yeah, I don't know. I liked them all, but I think the screen queen was mine. Because I, I think it was important that. I got it out. Because <laughs> I came out of the closet. You're out of the closet To now. say how much of that movie's not gay. I don't care how many people want to try and make it that. I just... But you know what? I never saw it. He is gay. And he's happy that... Well, no, it's people... great. It, it's done a lot more for Mark at this stage than anything else. Because, you know, now people are more accepting about it. And the movie is more revered now than it ever was. Like, I just... I never really got all the bullshit, and I, I feel bad for him that he had to, to put up with a mm-hmm. lot of that, because that's a lot of stuff that you never know about, you know, growing up. Yeah, you don't see the behind-the-scenes stuff, and especially back then when there's, you can't just go on Google and be like, whatever happened to so-and-so, I mean... There's always a story. We are, we're kind of spoiled now with the internet, because... I mean, if you're old like us, you used to have to go to the library, open up the card catalog. Do you young people know what a card catalog is? Because that's how you used... That was the original Google. You would go to the card catalog and look things up. So if you wanted to look up Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you'd have to go through it and find all the books on Nightmare on Elm Street. Go check out those books and read them. But now the beauty of the internet and the beauty of these recent documentaries, been, they have been like... So many. I mean, how many do we watch a week? Because we're we are, we're we documents. Yeah. Well, we just find so many random things. Like we still have. What's the right? one that I sent you about uh, today? Uh, was it about Behemoth? Behemoth? Yeah. yeah. So we have like topics already set for next week. We just have to get through them. And there's a movie at the watch, and just a lot of crazy things. You know, because the thing is, when she's out, some stuff I wait for until she gets back to watch and talk about. So. And my possible next job. It's going to be zero communication for two months. So 
I won't even be able to listen to anything. Yeah, she's not going to have much of anything. I'm, I might be able to contact him through email. So when I finally do talk to her, like she'll be like Smeagol mm-hmm. in a cave. I'll be like, uh, my precious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I love my job, and I love that I've been given these opportunities because I've had so much experience and so many new things that I've learned, and because I'm lucky to have certain things that other people are not able to get that I'm not allowed to talk about, you know, in public. But I'm lucky that I can take this job. However... I'm unlucky because it's going to be a long two months. That's not too bad, though. It's only bad if it goes like six months. Remember the my very first job? It was supposed to be know. 45 days. That was crazy. That was insanity. So uh, keeping in the thing with some of the grindcore stuff that we we're talking about, I got a band called Task Force Beer. I, I, I already love them. A. I don't... I don't now, I don't care. I love. I love them. Now I chose this particular track off their newest record because uh, the beginning is gonna play to the heartstrings of Neko here. So we're gonna leave you with this. Uh, we'll be back next week, obviously, with a whole new episode. But uh, enjoy. Thank you for listening. Be look out for Crypt and I if we get together. We're doing our best of half year album list uh that's sort of what we're gonna it's try kind of to like a on. christmas in june like. <laughs> right <laughs> so here's task force beer dancing king
Hi, I'm Lynn.